Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. A great interview, ladies and gentlemen, today. I was lucky to have Ellen Polson as my guest. She's a John Dillinger historian, the daughter of an NYPD police officer, and an award-winning author. I had a marathon chat with her about her book, Don't Call Us Malls, so long that I split it into two parts. Today's episode is all about Dillinger, and some of the women that played important roles in his life, both good and bad. Now, a bit of a heads up, this isn't an episode, per se, about the life and times of Dillinger. Again, it's about his many female relationships. We, we talk in passing about things like Little Bohemia, his arrest in Tucson, and his Crown Point escape, and his death, but not necessarily all of the details. So if you don't know much about him, There are many Dillinger websites with summaries of his criminal career that you're welcome to use as cliff notes, or go watch the Johnny Depp movie again, uh, Public Enemies, as a refresher. It's not necessary. This episode is fantastic on its own, but we don't go over his life and crimes in the typical narrative fashion that I do for the subjects of other episodes. I just want you to be prepared in the best way possible to enjoy this, and of course, Buying Ellen's book, again called Don't Call Us Malls, is the perfect resource for your individual study. Now on to the interview. Ellen Polson, thanks so much for agreeing to do this. And thank you for having me. There are a lot of books written about 1930s Midwest bank robbing gangsters, but not the women who followed them. What, what prompted you to write this book? I went through a phase where I started reading all the existing books on Dillinger. It's an interest that I have had since childhood. And at one point in time, there weren't really that many books around. There was Joe Pinkston's very informative book that was published in 1962. There was John Toland's The Dillinger Days. 
there really were not a lot of books about Dillinger at the time that I developed my interest in um, reading and learning more, a, a deeper study, so to speak. And I noticed while I was going through the books that the women weren't really mentioned beyond a, um, a sentence here, a sentence there, one or two photos, maybe, not of everyone. And I said to myself, what about them? There's a story there. There's something that I would like to know about. I'd like to ask you about the title, Don't Call Us Malls. If you could, explain what the word mall means and and how you decided on this as your title. That title comes directly out of a newspaper article that was written about one of the Dillinger Malls who were arrested in the period after the raid on the Little Bohemia Lodge. It differs as to who actually said it, but my source indicates that a woman named Jean Delaney Crompton, who was the girlfriend of bank robber Tommy Carroll, was being interviewed by a newspaper woman, and she said to the writer, please don't call us malls. A mall at the time being a euphemism for a a shady woman, a woman who was notorious and underworld. And it was a word that was popular with newspaper writers because it was short, it fit into a headline. And um, the idea of entitling the book Don't Call Us Malls actually came from my dear friend and colleague Bill Helmer, who wrote, uh, co-wrote Dillinger, The Untold Story in the 1990s, he said, um, why don't you use uh, Don't Call Us Malls? And I said, bingo, that's it. And uh, I've always been happy with the title, and I've always been glad that I used it. So your book describes the lives of both wives and girlfriends of gangsters. What are the differences between women married to hoodlums and the ones who dated them? No, that's a very loaded question. And I'm glad that you asked it because it gives me an opportunity to explore their roles a little bit. Marriage was more or less a piece of paper to a lot of these people. And being married didn't necessarily stamp a wife as a loyalist to her nefarious spouse any more than being a girlfriend meant that you wouldn't be loyal, uh, if you know what I mean. Some of these people were married because of alliances that had started way back in the 1920s, and then prison terms would interfere with these relationships, and um, Very often, they never really got back on track. One example that I can think of is uh, Paula Harmon from uh, the St. Paul gangsters, the Barker Corpus gangsters, where her boyfriend, who then became her husband, Charlie Harmon, went away to prison. And when he came back, they never really had that bond because she was hanging out and more or less acting like, uh, if I may use the term, um, a St. Paul uh, bluesy from the Roaring Twenties, you know. So they never got back on track. 
In contrast, you have a relationship such as Babyface Nelson's relationship to his wife, Helen Gillis. She was with him before he went into Joliet Prison in the early 1930s. They had two small children. He escaped. She is more or less um, considered to have been the person that helped him escape, possibly by slipping him a gun. And she stayed with him after his escape, and she was with him until his death. Literally, she was with him on the day that he died. So you have different models here in these two examples of marriage, uh, gangster style, desperado gangster style. On the other hand, you have two different types of girlfriends. You had Evelyn Freshette, who was a very devoted consort to John Dillinger, although they never married. You have Mary Kinder, who was loyal to Harry Pierpont. They were also Dillinger gang members. In fact, Mary wanted to marry Harry Pierpont, and they tried to marry while they were in custody. And um, they should have been allowed to. Nothing was holding it back, but the... Uh, Powers that were in charge of that proceeding in Tucson said, well, she's already married. Even though she was legally divorced, they maybe couldn't find divorce papers, and they refused to allow them to be married. So you have them, and then you have girlfriends that blew the coop. Um, a lot of times the proof of the pudding was whether or not they could withstand the heat of a gun battle. You know, like... John Hamilton, a Dillinger henchman, was uh, with a, a woman named Elaine Dent at uh, the moment that he was ambushed in a Chicago garage. It resulted in the unfortunate, um, tragic, fatal shooting of a police officer, Sergeant William Shanley. Elaine Dent completely denied knowing anything about Hamilton's criminal background and um, she never went back to him. She considered herself lucky to be released and uh, set free. So you had the type of women that were just in there for the really short haul, a couple of dates, a couple of presents. And then you had the ones who were so devoted, and uh, it didn't take a piece of paper really to seal that devotion. So I have to mention right here that, that I am from St. Paul, and I have met some of those floozies myself. <laughs> have you? I'm just kidding, no. <laughs> and, and, you know, they say Minnesota nice, and I'm a New Yorker, and I've been to Minnesota, and I see how nice everybody is, and sometimes I think it's incongruous. <laughs> All these gangsters from St. Paul. <laughs> yeah, St. Paul was so nice that they let criminals live in the city and, and didn't bother them. <laughs> Uh, under the condition that they committed no crimes within the city limits. That's right. They lived under that system, Harry Sawyer's system, and uh, the system that allowed the Barker Corpus Gang to proliferate, and also a, a cooling-off spot for John Dillinger after he escaped from Crown Point. Yeah, John O'Connor was actually the, the police chief back at the turn of the century. John O'Connor, that's right. And he created the O'Connor system, or the layover system, as it's better known, to keep crime down in St. Paul. And this is just a little side note, <laughs> but since we're on the subject of, of John Dillinger, I was 
pretty obsessed with him once upon a time. And I actually went so far as to, to rent a place at the Lincoln Court Apartments, the, the apartment building where Dillinger famously shot it out with St. Paul Police and the FBI. Wow. And it was actually down the hall from his apartment. Off the top of my head, I, I can't remember the number now. A dream come true, room 355. I mean, I'm not sure, but something like that, right? Right, right. That that sounds right. It was so much fun while living there, just, just imagining the Dillinger gang meeting there, Homer Van Meter and the other gang members coming up those same steps. Yes, and you, you know, I was there. I visited it not to go inside, but I was very surprised to see how spread out that layout was. Like going, well, again, coming from New York, a lot of things look spread out to New Yorkers because we live pretty crowded here. But it looked like a pretty long ride down that um, alley or uh, easement to get into those garages where they backed out. It all seemed very suburban almost in its appearance. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's so interesting that just a half a block away was the site of the Edward Bremer kidnapping by the Barker Carpus gang, which had happened only a few months before. It was very close in dates, wasn't it? It was a, Bremer was January, and that shootout was um, the spring, right? The end of March. Well, it, the shootout was March. Uh, and, March 13th of 1934, if I remember right. Right. Bremer was January, so it was a hot... Uh, Hot neighborhood. Absolutely. So you've you've already talked a little bit about Evelyn Billy Frechette. Could you talk a little bit more about their relationship and how they actually met? Well, you know, she was and she was half American Indian, and um, you no. Know, as an aside, I was slightly annoyed when I watched the Johnny Depp movie about John Dillinger. I love the actress who played Evelyn Frechette. Uh, Marion Cotillard. I felt, however, that the the um, filmmakers were stressing the European, uh, maybe because she has a French accent. It might have just been for practical reasons. She was um, half French and half Native American, and I just felt that in that movie they they really sort of negated the whole Aboriginal nature of her heritage. You know that she came from the Menominee tribe in Wisconsin, and um, she was, that was her identity. She lived on the reservation. She never left the reservation. She never lost her ties. She ended up going back to that area of Wisconsin and living there until she died, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. She left the reservation in the 1920s as a young girl, as did many of the young women, after graduating from one of those Indian schools, she had been taken to a school uh, in another state and was educated there, and she graduated. Now, whether or not she was forcibly taken, as is the as is the standard, um, I guess, stereotypical thing that we think of when we think of those Indian schools. I did get to the reservation and I spoke to some of her family members and they said that she wanted to go, that it was a way for her to improve herself. 
and um, she was anxious for the opportunity. Sometimes people make things up when you interview them, though. So I, maybe other writers have told you that. They, they just want to sound like they know what they're saying. So I don't know if that's true or not. But the fact remains that she did graduate from school, whatever high school was in, in that place and time. And she set out for Milwaukee. She did get into a bit of trouble. She was involved with men. In that era, you know, people talked and she developed what was called a bad reputation. So going back to the reservation was not a comfortable thing for her to do. She was estranged from her mother at one point, but um, not her sister's. She remained close to her sister, Patsy, uh, who did help her out in Chicago quite a bit, gave her a place to stay and things like that. So here was this young woman. She had had some bad experiences, and she was uh, one of these underclass of society type people. You know, she had a job in a speakeasy as a hat check or a coat check, and she was not allowed to drink, even within a speakeasy environment, being a Native American, or as they said in those days, an Indian, she was not allowed to have liquor. It was commonly thought that Indians, if I may say that, uh, Indians get drunk or, you know, drink like an Indian. So, um, some of the folklore is that Dillinger was um, the person who would sneak her the drinks, and that is how they got to know each other. It is commonly assumed by historians that Evelyn Frechette met Dillinger in the summer to fall of 1933. Now, there's absolutely nothing to substantiate this um, beyond the shadow of a doubt. So this is what is generally assumed. Between summer of 33 and fall of 33, while she was working in a place called the Olympia Lounge in Chicago, she was friends with Pat Charrington and Opa Long, and they were involved with Dillinger Gangsters, and that is how she met John Dillinger. She later denied knowing that he was a gangster uh, for some of the articles that she um, contributed to in romance magazines and uh, syndicated newspaper articles, but uh, it's commonly believed that she did know who he was. So that was how they started. Dillinger had many loves over the course of his short life. How was his relationship with Billy different from his other girlfriends? Well, if I may contradict you on that, um, he had girlfriends. Whether or not they were loves is um, something that has been disputed. I'll get to your the second half of your question in a moment about how she differed from the other women. But um, his, his love life was more or less characterized by his nemesis, um, a police captain named Captain Matt Leach, who said that everybody thinks that Dillinger was such a romantic hero, but look at the women he was going around with. 
One of them was a, a single mother uh, who was uh, in trouble and, and needed him for his money and and this and that. And this police captain really put Dillinger down in, in that way by saying that he was not a romantic figure at all and that when he did meet Evelyn Frechette, they were like two kids running around in a car. They didn't even act like mature adults. And a lot of disparaging remarks about Dillinger from Captain Matt Leach there. But the other women that Dillinger went out with before he was with Evelyn Frechette, I'll, uh, I'll list them for you. There was Mary Longnaker. Most people are familiar with Mary Longnaker from the famous book, the famous classic, The Dillinger Days by John Tolan. There's a picture of John Dillinger and Mary Longnaker. She is the single mother that Matt Leach so disparagingly mentioned. She was uh, in one of these situations where her ex-husband had stolen the kids. She was going out with Dillinger more or less because her brother was part of a gang of men that Dillinger was working to help escape from the Michigan City Penitentiary. So her brother was James Jenkins. He was rumored to be Dillinger's, I guess, friendly cellmate. That's only a rumor, but they were cellmates and they were very close. And Jenkins was in on the escape. So Dillinger was going out with Mary Longmaker. They were going back and forth to Michigan City to visit James Jenkins. They were leaving money in fruit, money in fruit baskets uh, in order to uh, help the men that were still behind bars who were in on the escape plan. And um, when Mary Longmaker, her location was discovered by a private investigator named Forrest Huntington, who um, notified police in her town of Dayton, Ohio, that Dillinger was going to be visiting there. Prior to Mary Longnaker, Dillinger's relationships were more or less with uh, ladies of the night. I'll say, use that very quaint term just for purposes of broadcasting. I come from an era where you still didn't say certain things in, in public media, so I don't know whether I sound silly. But most of the people that he hung out with in those days were other low-level bank robbers who frequented houses of prostitution, and those were the women that he was running around with and spending his money on, spending the money that he was getting from the bank robberies. So Mary Longnaker represented a step up for him in that she was a more or less a respectable person who wasn't working in prostitution or any kind of crime. She just had a brother who was incarcerated. Okay, we will go back to that moment when um, Dayton police tracked Dillinger to Mary Longnaker's boarding house room in um, Dayton. They arrest Dillinger. Mary Longnaker never gives any information. She plays dumb. She pretends to faint. She never gave any information to incriminate Dillinger at all. She was uh, a stand-up girl in that respect. 
after Dillinger's arrest and incarceration in the Lima County Jail in Ohio, Mary Longnaked never looked back. She went on to get her divorce, get her children, get remarried. And um, while she was tailed for a long time, she never um, gave the FBI any real information about Dillinger. She just uh, wanted to get, she wanted an end to the whole affair. Her brother, um, to give you a postscript, her brother died in the course of escaping from the Michigan City prison, an escape which Dillinger did effect by robbing banks during that early period and getting the money fenced into a, an escape plan that was funded by other women. There was a woman named Pearl Elliott. There was a woman named Mary Kinder. None of these were Dillinger's girlfriends. They were just women who were acting as gang members by taking care of the money that Dillinger was raising to help fund this big escape from the Michigan City prison. If you want me to um, fast forward to the, the woman that Dillinger was dating after he lost Evelyn Freshette, after she was arrested, I could do that. But maybe you want to leave that for a bit later on, Eric. Well, well I just wanted to, to make a quick comment. And you, you cover this beautifully in your book. It's just so interesting how these men, these, in many cases, hardened criminals, how they relied so heavily on the women in their lives, especially when they were in trouble. I mean, these these women, these malls were indispensable to these guys, weren't they? Um, thank you for giving them that credit. I think you're probably the first person who's ever given them credit for that. They were indispensable. They were hard workers. Um, if you want to call criminal activity work, they had to do things like walk into banks and open safe deposit boxes because, believe it or not, stolen earnings were very often kept in safe deposit boxes. A lot of times there were jewel thieves among them or other types of heists, stocks and bonds that would be uh, stolen that had to be somehow processed. And so for safekeeping, these things were kept in, in banks. They had to go into banks and um, do paperwork and make themselves very visible, at, which was a dangerous undertaking for them, especially after their photographs started appearing on wanted posters. And that happened as early as November 1933. So, that their jobs were dangerous. They had to take care of guns, um, hold them in back seats of cars under blankets, drive at high speed with these men, which in itself was not such a safe thing. A lot of times these old cars ended up going into ditches. They had other jobs like renting apartments, renting hideouts, advanced advance fixes, so to speak, where they had to go in ahead of time and even look at uh, banks, although that really wasn't necessarily the job of the malls. Bank robbing gangs in those days had their own people who did that, their own people who went in ahead of time and looked over the bank. There was um, very distinct divisions of labor within these gangs. 
Everybody knew what their job was. And those who didn't know what their jobs were and who tangled with the established order were very often ejected from the gangs. There are lots of strong women during this era on the wrong side of the law, but, but there are also some strong women in authority positions. And that's what's both wonderful and, and I'm sure a surprise to a lot of people when exploring this time period. I'd love it if you could talk about some of these women, including the sheriff of the Crown Point Jail that Dillinger famously escaped from, Sheriff Lillian Hawley. Could you talk about her and explain her role in the escape? Oh, certainly I would. Sheriff Lillian Hawley was somebody who almost was a patsy. You know, I mean, if you re- you recall the uh, arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald after the Kennedy assassination, what did he say? I'm just a patsy. Well, she really, Lillian Holly really was the patsy. She was a figure who was not privy to the strange inner workings of Dillinger's escape from the so-called Escape Proof County Jail and uh, I will explore that a little bit. The Crown Point County Jail was located in Lake County, Indiana. It was the venue of the shooting death of William Patrick O'Malley, the police officer that Dillinger was accused of fatally shooting in the course of a bank robbery that took place on January 15, 1934. Because Lake County was the venue for that crime, Dillinger was sent there after he was arrested in Tucson, Arizona, shortly before that. Now, Dillinger's delivery to that venue was a controversial one at the time. A lot of Indiana officials wanted Dillinger returned to a maximum security penitentiary, Michigan City, and he was not. He was sent to a very minimum security county jail that was situated next to and behind the sheriff's quarters, the sheriff being Lillian Holly. She was a Democrat. She was in that position because her husband, Roy, had been killed the year before by a uh, prisoner gone wild, um, a maniacal prisoner who shot him dead. And Lillian Holly, the 38 years old and the mother of twin girls, suddenly finds herself elevated to the position of sheriff. Now, I'm quite sure she was qualified. I'm quite sure she was experienced with her firearms and all of that. But she wasn't in the boys' club. And the boys' club at that time included some very corrupt individuals. Individuals from the corrupt East Chicago, Indiana police force who had been harboring Dillinger gangsters and who had a lot at stake. And they didn't want Dillinger spilling the beans and and telling people that, you know, their corrupt police department was uh, on the fix so that notorious bank robbers could hang out in their town. So they banded together quietly behind the scenes, and 
a conspiracy started which would make it possible for John Dillinger to escape from the Crown Point County Jail, obsessively with a wooden gun. We know now that Dillinger's escape with the wooden gun was actually a, a very sophisticated operation that involved the transfer of between twenty to thirty thousand dollars, delivery of Thompson submachine guns, two of which he grabbed before he escaped from the prison, and uh, even uh, systems in place to allow him to steal a car belonging to Sheriff Lillian Holly. Now, because she was not in on it, she became, well, in our modern parlance, the fall guy. She became the figurehead for the escape. It was open season on her, and uh, it was really cruel what was done to her. I mean, cruel sounds like a funny word to use. It was all very cruel what was going on from beginning to end. But she was um, made the patsy. A woman can't do this job. They had pictures of her with captions that said, add a girl. You know, at a girl. The media was merciless to her. And it caused her to more or less fold in on herself. And um, she never recovered from that. I mean, the, her position was given the following year, I believe, to her nephew, Carol Holly, who was also uh, around uh, that time, but not in on the conspiracy, you know. But um, after Lillian Holly survived that whole Dillinger experience. She lived to 103 years old, and she never wanted to talk about it again. And uh, one noted um, writer actually tried to speak to her, and uh, she said to him, if you're uh, here to talk about Dillinger, you can get your ass out of here. So that was exactly how she stood on it. And, you know, by contrast, there was another female police officer who was in on a lot of the things that happened uh, during the Dillinger era, an Indianapolis police officer named Marie Grott. And she, although she was also typecast by the newspapers as the beautiful brunette, uh, the comely brunette. I mean, the things, the words they used to describe women in those days, right? She was, uh, she went, uh, she went along to arrest uh, the Dillinger gang and bring the Dillinger gang back to Indianapolis. And she was served as matron for Mary Kinder. She was photographed quite a bit in the company of the Dillinger mobsters and other police officers, but she never suffered the ridicule that Sheriff Lillian Holly did. Likewise, one other female law enforcement agent that I can think of right now is Doris Lockerman, who was married to an FBI agent, and she was privy to some of the most amazing discussions that took place between FBI agents and these gangsters. Doris Lockerman uh, was there when... Uh, Vern Miller, the uh, Kansas City massacre suspect, was ambushed in Chicago in a Chicago hallway. She was there for that. She was there for interview with uh, Dylan Jamal Marie Comforte. 
Doris Lockerman went on to write a series of articles that were published in, I believe it was the Chicago Tribune about the Dillinger era. She, too, never suffered the derision. So uh, what happened to Lillian Holly was just that simply she was a woman who was at the wrong place and the wrong time, big time. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. While we're on the subject of, of women central to Dillinger's life and death, I'd like to ask you about Anna Sage, known in history as the woman in red. Many people assume that they were an item just prior to him getting gunned down, but, but that wasn't true, was it? That many people assume that 
Anna Sage was dating John Dillinger is not true. It's probably the result of media or movies or just the very idea that the woman in red would have had to have been romantically involved with Dillinger because that statement itself is just so ripe with sexual innuendo, you know. But um, Anna Sage was certainly not romantically involved with John Dillinger. I will get into her background in a second. There was another woman living with Anna Sage and John Dillinger at the time that he sought cover in her apartment approximately three weeks before his death. Her name was Holly Hamilton Keel. Now, after Dillinger was killed and after she came out of hiding, she was featured in a series of articles that were syndicated throughout the United States, most notably the New York Journal and the Chicago newspapers, maybe the Chicago Herald and Examiner. And she talked at length about the great romance that she had with John Dillinger. They went to amusement parks. They went to uh, certain restaurants and nightclubs. They had so much fun. I think personally that that was an exaggeration. I don't personally believe that Dillinger and Polly Hamilton were in love. She coincidentally bore a great resemblance to Evelyn Freshette. And when you look at pictures of the two of them, it's amazing how much they looked alike. But um, she was herself one of the girls back in Gary, Indiana, and her history was similar to that of Anna Sage, the woman in red. Both of these women came out of the prostitution rackets in Gary, Indiana, dating back to the 1920s. And uh, Joe Pinkston, the great Dillinger historian, once said to me that he felt that the arrangement that Anna Sage and Polly Hamilton had was that Anna Sage was the madam and Polly was her one girl. It was a, a one or two girl arrangement there, very similar to the type of arrangements that were happening in New York City during that era. You know, the popular concept of a brothel in our imagination, you know, from Boardwalk Empire, the Al Capone era of a room full of gorgeous young girls. This prostitution model carried by Anna Sage and Polly Hamilton was really just one madam, one girl. And that was the arrangement that Dylan just stumbled into. So it's possible he was even paying Polly Hamilton for her escort services, but that we don't know. Now, Polly Hamilton, again, the, the woman going out with Dillinger before he died and living with Anna Sage, the woman in red, she had been married to a Gary police officer who divorced her because she didn't keep house. I mean, that was what was put in the, uh, in the divorce papers. She didn't keep house the way she should have. And that, that's almost something that is loaded with innuendo, right? <laughs> right. So the situation was that Dillinger was pretty desperate. He had had plastic surgery in the house of uh, Jimmy Probasco on Crawford Avenue in Chicago. 
He was paying a lot of money to live in Probasco's house. And then Probasco got cold feet after the plastic surgery and kicked him out. Dillinger was very dependent on his attorney, an underworld lawyer named Louis Piquet. Louis Piquet at that point originated the relationship between Dillinger and Anna Sage through a third party named Sergeant Martin Zarkovich. Sergeant Zarkovich dated back to the Crown Point escape conspiracy and the corrupt town of East Chicago, Indiana. And he was the person who put Dillinger in touch with Anna Sage. So now we have Dillinger living with this woman on Halstead Street, right in the middle of the Lakeview neighborhood in Chicago. It's to this day a real hub. It's a great section of Chicago. It's got a lot of fun bars. At that time, it was a real hub, not very far from Wrigley Field, not very far from the Lake Michigan area of, uh, which attracted tourists and, uh, you know, so Dillinger was now the most wanted man in the nation, and he's right in the middle of a very popular area of Chicago. But he didn't have the kind of protection he really needed, and he was desperately hiding behind these two women, Anna Sage and uh, Holly Hamilton. Anna Sage's role was more or less she would prepare meals, they went out together, and uh, more or less, she probably had a housekeeper or two. It was very common for madams to hire housekeepers to, to take care of the apartments that they lived in. And um, her night out at the movies with Dillinger actually was the, you know, the catalyst for her betraying him to the FBI. And uh, we know how that ended up. So I'd like to go back to Evelyn Frechette, if I could. Sure. She's so famous and so associated with Dillinger. He went out of his way to look after her, even after she was arrested. It was a a special relationship, wouldn't you say? Uh, Dillinger and Evelyn Frechette had a very special relationship. And it's no accident that all of the movies made about Dillinger, whatever you think about those movies— they all give her a very prominent role. She was played by Michelle Phillips in um, The Mamas and the Papas. Michelle Phillips in The Dillinger, made in 1973. She was played, as I mentioned before, by a very big actress, Marion Cotillard, in the Johnny Depp, John Dillinger. So I think it's more or less acknowledged by armchair Dillinger buffs and historians alike that Evelyn Frechette was a very important person in his life. The period following her arrest was a difficult one for him. And no, we're not giving sympathy to the devil when we say it was difficult for Dillinger to live without her. I think we're just analyzing the life and times of a, of a notorious person. After her arrest, he did a couple of things that were far-fetched and didn't accomplish anything. He put uh, certain people on a hit list. He put um, a FBI agent who uh, was acu- who was accused by her of roughing her up, Harold Reinecke. 
he put Harold Reinecke's name on a special handwritten hit list that he maintained. That's kind of incongruous because Dillinger wasn't a hired gun and he wasn't known for any kind of contract killings. He was barely known for um, shooting uh, shooting during the course of a robbery, uh, let alone the Chicago and Indiana accusation. Outside of that, Dillinger wasn't ever known for um, deliberately shooting to kill. So here he had... Evelyn Frechette's tormentor on a hit list. He tried to visit her while she was on trial in the famous landmark building in St. Paul, but that probably amounted to nothing more than driving around. He was never able to visit her. He did, however, use his attorney as a proxy, and I mentioned his attorney's name to you before, Louis Piquette, when the terror gang members were on trial in Limer, Ohio, those three men being Charles Makeley, Harry Pierpont, and Russell Clark, they were Dillinger's associates on uh, uh, several bank robberies before their arrest in Tucson, Arizona. While they were on trial, Louis Piquette went into Limer, Ohio. He was... um there to to raise some money for um, Evelyn's defense. So Dillinger was trying to fund her defense through his attorney, Louis Piquette. He would be disappointed by Piquette's performance. He basically dropped the ball on Evelyn. He, he did defend her, but perhaps it was a combination of he wasn't much of a lawyer you know, he wasn't known for courtroom heroics. He was known more for fixes and of the things that underworld attorneys are good at. Although he defended her in court and she did go on trial, she was convicted of harboring and she was sentenced to two years in um, in federal custody. And she served her two years and she was also uh, fined. She was fined, and uh, because she had no money, the reservation actually, her Indian reservation paid her fine over a period of many years. So, um, you know, yes, Dillinger did do what he could for Evelyn Freshette after her arrest, but uh, it was too little, too late. She was uh, put in prison for harboring him. He was the cause of all her problems no matter what he did, to try to ameliorate that fact. And, and the rest of her life wasn't very pleasant either, was it? It depends on who you speak to. Evelyn Frechette did go back to the Menominee Reservation, and she stayed there. She had a very sad event occur in the 1940s, I believe 1949. She was remarried, and... Uh, her husband committed suicide, according to, I've heard different versions of it. One version is that he went to a, to a lake up there in that neighborhood that they lived in, Shawana, Wisconsin, and shot himself by a lake. Another version, uh, which I was uh, told by her family members, was that he actually committed suicide inside their apartment or their home, and she came home from shopping and discovered him. Um, it was uh, 
something that affected her pretty deeply because she did not get back together with anyone for a long time. Now, from 1949, the period of her first husband's suicide, and 1965, when she married again, it's not really clear. There isn't any real paper trail on her in those days. She uh, married again in 1965 in a Catholic church. She married a, uh, a man named Ottick, and he was... Uh, the man that she was with until she died, he took care of her. I was fortunate enough to be able to speak to him by phone while he was still alive. And uh, he was very nice, and he spoke about her as any man would speak about his beloved wife. He said things like she was always good at fishing and hunting, which I would believe, having grown up on an Indian reservation in the 20s, and, you know, the, the 19 teens and the 1920s and, um, that she liked to cook. And, uh, you know, there are some photographs in existence of Evelyn on vacation with Arctic in a uh, little cabin by a lake. I think their life was provincial. Most likely they never got further than Milwaukee or Chicago, but they had a nice, middle-class life for themselves in the few years before she passed away in 1969. Now, there's been some controversy about Evelyn Frechette and her marriage to Art Tick. One writer claimed to have gone to visit her, and she was out in the, living out in the uh, woods with a, with a gang. Someone said that she was separated from Art Tick at one point. So there's different versions of what her life was like, but we do know that it was cloaked in a, a marital status. She lived as a married woman in the last years of her life. To our knowledge, no children were ever born to her, um, aside from a, a baby that she is said to have had out of wedlock when she was a very young girl, and that's a tragic story. But uh, in, in years after Dillinger, she never had any children. I believe Artic had some uh, daughters, and she served as their stepmother. But they were grown, so it, it wasn't a traditional stepmother relationship. It was more adult-to-adult relationship. As you were talking about some of the different portrayals of John Dillinger and Evelyn Frechette, it got me to, to thinking about a TV movie from the 90s about them starring Mark Harmon and Sherilyn Fenn. I think of all the movies about Dillinger and Billy, this one really got their their physical appearance down really well. I, I'm glad you mentioned the Mark Harmon. Did you, do you mind if I ask you a question? Do, did you like it? No. I, I actually, I didn't like the way they told the story, but, but watching Harmon and Sherilyn Fenn, I found myself believing that they were Dillinger and Frechette, again, just because they looked like them so much. <laughs> and the other guy that had some physical similarities was, was Oates. Um, not not John Oates. <laughs> uh, Warren Oates? Yes, Warren Oates. He, he looked a lot like Dillinger, too. Yeah, Warren Oates had physical similarities. It's a shame that that movie deteriorated into such a silly movie. I mean this business where he was 
knocking Evelyn Frechette around from uh, one frame to the next was disputed to me by family members. And I tend to believe that that whole idea that um, Dillinger was uh, abusive to her came out of the uh, John Tolan's book, The Dillinger Days, and uh, then that movie perpetuated that. My personal opinion is that if he had been roughing her up and if she was walking around with black eyes and this and that, that at one point her description would have been has black eyes, has big, has big, uh, ruddy nose, you know, and, and nobody ever described her as bearing the signs of physical abuse to the FBI or anything. So it seems to me that there's no physical evidence at all to substantiate the kind of stuff that was shown in that Warren Oates movie. As far as, I, and I'm sorry, I got, I got off your, your thread. You were talking about the Mark Harmon. The Mark Harmon, was it a made for, it was on television. It was a made for TV movie. That was the only one that ever portrayed a character that I feel is inherent to the Dillinger story, and that was Captain Matt Leach. He was the first lawman to bring Dillinger to the attention of the public. He was the, uh, the go-to guy who talked to the media about the Dillinger gang, and um, he was also the first person to publicize the descriptions of the Dillinger Malls. And so, you know, he was uh, an important character, and he's virtually ignored in every one of these movies except for the Mark Harmon rendition of John Dillinger's life. So again, my interview with Ellen Paulson, author of Don't Call Us Malls, will continue next week, where we'll discuss more Dillinger gang hangers-on, <laughs> the, the very unique Helen Gillis, a.k.a. Mrs. Babyface Nelson, and Bonnie Parker, among many. This has been The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. If you're so inclined to swing by iTunes and leave a rating or a review for me, your kind comments always make my day. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.